Do you love Jesus? Okay, there's three of you that love Jesus. The rest of you are going to hell. I'm just kidding. Let's try that again. Do you love Jesus? All right, some of you didn't cheer. Some of you didn't say anything. And it's probably like the reality is, pull me back just a little bit, John, if you will. The, 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 the reality is some of you didn't say anything just then because you haven't experienced Jesus's love for you. And you're not sure if Jesus loves you and you're not sure you buy into this thing. And our hope and our prayer is that you walk out of this place with a clear understanding that Jesus not only loves you, but he passionately pursues you, that he comes after you, that he bet the farm on you and he wants nothing more than to see you in his presence, to see you in relationship with him, to see you experiencing what that song talked about, and that is his presence and the fullness of who he is in your heart and in your life. So if you're not sure about that this morning, our hope and our prayer is that you walk out of this place with an assurance that there is a God in heaven who loves you, cares about you, and passionately pursues you through his son, the name of Jesus. So we're so thankful that you are here and that you've decided to join us for week two of a series that um, we kicked off last week called Signs. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Robbie and I have the distinct honor and privilege of being one of the pastors here at Hope City Church. And if I haven't got the chance to meet you yet, I would love the opportunity to be able to do that. I'm going to be hanging out in our lobby after the service is over. Please stop by, say hello, introduce yourself. Let me know how you and your family ended up here at Hope City Church. I'd love the chance to talk to you a little bit just about who you are and get to know you a little bit better. Now, if you see me at any point this morning walking a little funny or you think that I'm sitting down a little bit more than normal, there's a very distinct and real reason for that. This morning, we did the unthinkable for a pastor's family. We overslept. We slept through our alarm this morning. And there's a couple levels of freak out mode in a pastor's family. Family when you oversleep on Sunday morning. Um, the first level is what I consider level one, which is not really a huge deal. That's when you oversleep. And when you look at your clock, you realize like you overslept and you overshot the time that you were supposed to get up, but it's okay. Like everything's going to be okay because you're still awake early enough and you're not going to be late to church. And then there's, I've only done this one other time. Then there's like all out freak out mode. That's considered level two. And level two is when you have overslept past the point of the service starting and you're not sure whether you're going to make it onto the stage in time and you look at your phone and there's a thousand missed calls that wasn't this morning but it was close it was really really close like we were scrambling we were somewhere in between level one and level two we were trying to get out the door we were throwing clothes at our kids I don't even know if my kids match today they may or may not have shoes like we're unaware we were throwing clothes at our kids trying to get out the door and I, and I didn't have and it's a terrible morning for this to happen I didn't have any socks in my sock drawer this morning. And so what I did was what you do when you don't have any socks in your sock drawer. You go to the laundry room and you grab socks either out of the dryer or on top of the dryer. I'm not sure where I grabbed them from, but I grabbed them from some general vicinity in the laundry room. Grab these socks, run downstairs, sit in the living room, throw my shoes on, trying to get my socks on. And while I'm trying to get my socks on, I realize they're not going on like they should be going on. And I'm groggy and it's t- I'm, t- I'm tired and I'm, I'm like kind of spaced out a little bit and still not really sure what, what's going on. And so I'm thinking maybe I'm just having trouble. I can't get focused. And about that time, my wife runs in the door. She's already at the car and she's like, Robbie, come on. We're going to be late. Like she's freaking out. Like, I don't know that already, but she's yelling it to me, making sure that I am aware that we're going to be late. And so I just grab my shoes and have one sock halfway on and the other one, not on at all. And I grab the stuff and I just jump in the car and I'm on the way here and I'm putting my socks on. And I realize why it's so difficult for my socks to go on. It's because I'm trying to put on a pair of my two-year-old daughter, Callie's socks. And to this 
moment I am wearing my daughter's socks. They're stretched out like pantyhose. They're supposed to be really thick and nice and warm and snuggly, but they're like super thin. And I'm pretty sure I've worn a hole in the heel at this point. And so if you see me walking funny, it's because my feet are a little tingly. I'm a little off balance this morning because I'm wearing my daughter's socks. And if, if that's never happened to you, if, if rushing out the door super late and you're doing something stupid has never happened to you, you probably want to find a different church because we're a real church with real people who make real mistakes and experience real life. And so we want you to know that there are no perfect people allowed at Hope City Church. And so that's the, that's the deal. That's why I'm a little off kilter and off balance this morning. But we believe that Jesus is greater than our insufficiencies at this church. And we're convinced that he's going to teach us and show up here in a very real and powerful way. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being here and joining us. If you um, are just joining us, you weren't here last week, let me kind of give you a little bit of recap in, in terms of what we've been talking about. This idea of signs came from the reality that all of humanity spends an inordinate amount of their time asking that question. What in the world does God want me to do? God, what is your will? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to marry? Where do you want me to move? Where do you want me to live? And we ask those questions all the time. And the way that we get confirmation or that we get peace from God is we ask God to show us signs. We ask God to make it clear. We ask God to give us peace. We ask God, God, if you want this to happen, then let this happen. If you want us to see this, then make this happen. And we're all the time looking for signs about what we should do in our life. And all too often, while we're looking for signs about what we should do, we miss the biggest sign that's already been revealed and made abundantly clear about who we should B. See, God's will, and we discovered this last week, God's will has a lot less to do with what we should do, where we should go, who we should marry, and far more to do with who we are becoming. And if we will allow ourselves to be open to the presence of God, we allow ourselves to be open to a relationship with God, if we allow ourselves to spend time every single day pouring into uh, that relationship by reading his word and, and crying out to him the reality of our heart through prayer and allowing his church to, to hold us accountable and sharpen our faith. If we'll do those things, then we are right dead center in the middle of God's will. And when we find ourselves at that point in life, we can do whatever we want to do. We don't have to ask God, God, what do you want me to do here? What do you want me to do here? Show me this, show me that. We don't have to ask God for signs because when we're in the middle of a relationship with God that is growing through his word and through his church, we are already in his will. And what will inevitably happen is what you want will begin to look a lot more like what God wants. And when what you want looks like what God wants, you don't have to ask God what he wants. You just do what you want and you'll be doing what God wants in your life. Does that make sense? Everybody kind of called up and kind of know where we're at. Just in case you didn't catch it, let me boil it down into kind of one sentence. I want you to write this down. This is kind of the overarching theme for this entire series. If you're not somebody who likes to write stuff down, do it anyway, because it'll help you remember. If you don't like to write, then bust out your phone and go open your notepad. And I want you to take this down. Super, super important. It's not gonna be on the screen. Just listen close. God's will has way less to do with what you are doing and far more to do with who you are becoming. God's will has far less to do with what you're doing and far more to do with who you are becoming. And this is why this series is insanely important to us. Because I don't know about you, but I know this is true in my own life. I don't spend near as much time asking God about who I'm becoming 
as I do about what I should be doing. God, do you want me to do this? God, make it clear. Do I go here? God, God, is this your will? Is this what you want? Do, do you want me to see her? Do you not want me to see him? Do you, do, you, do you want me to take that job? Do you not want me to? Those are our prayers. But God's not interested in answering those questions. He wants us to ask God, are we becoming the people that you've called us to be? Are we looking more like your son? Are we walking in your ways? Are we living like your son? Are we, are we guiding our life by your spirit? Are, are, are we becoming who it is that you want us to be? We don't pray those prayers very often. But what God is saying is, if you would start focusing on what my will is for you, not what you do, for you, for who you are, you'll have a peace and it'll be made clear about what you should do. Does that make sense? So now that we're kind of all on the same page, I'd like to do something. I'd like to spell it out because it's obvious that God wants us to walk in his ways. It's obvious that God wants us to look like his son. And it's obvious that God wants us to live by his spirit through the reading of his word. The question is, what does walking in his ways look like? What does looking like his son look like? What does living by his spirit look like? Well, I'm going to lay it out in crystal clear detail um, by reading you a passage of scripture. It's found in the Old Testament book of Micah. If you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to turn there. Micah chapter 6, picking it up in verse 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. If you don't have your Bibles, please stop by uh, the Resource Center on your way out. and We'd love to give you a Bible for free if you don't have one. If you just forgot it today, you can look on with a friend or you can look on your smartphone or tablet or the verses will be on the screens for you for today's purpose. But Micah chapter six, verse eight says this. It says, he has showed you, not not we're looking for, not we're not sure, not we're trying to figure it out, not please, please, please tell me, show me a sign, show me a sign. But he's already showed you, oh man, what it is that's good. And what does the Lord require of you? Or some translations words it this way. What is God's will for you? Here it is, you ready? To act justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, before all the Christians check out and before you say, oh, this is kind of a flatline message. I've heard this one before. I've heard that verse before. I've seen that's, that, that, that's, I've seen 30 different pieces of artwork with that on Pinterest and I don't need to see it again. Like that doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not getting anything new out of this. Just hang tight for just a second because the reality is most of us naturally do not live like that. And even as followers of Jesus, the majority of our lives aren't indicated by those factors. If we're honest, if we're just being honest in the room, even though that's what God's will is, even though that's how we walk in his ways, even though that's what living by his spirit looks like, most of us don't live that way. Think about it. It says to act justly. Do we care about justice in the world or do we care about what we want and do we not want it now, right? There's, there's all kinds of atrocities and things going on around the world. And we could, we could spend our lives focused on others and focused on God's justice being brought to this earth. But all too often, we spend all of our time focusing on getting what we want and getting it right now. That's why J.G. Wentworth made a lot of money on those commercials. I want my money and I want it right now, right? That's why we have fast food restaurants in this world. Because we want to be able to pull up somewhere and they feed us right now, immediately. We don't want to have to wait on it. 
That's why Domino's a few years ago said, we'll get you your pizza in 30 minutes or less because people craved getting what they wanted and wanting it now. Which they did a terrible job of it, lost a lot of money, and that's why they quit doing the 30 minutes or less deal. I think they upped it to like an hour and a half. We'll give you your pizza for free if it's an hour and a half and it's cold and it's got mold on it and all that stuff. But the reality is we want what we want. We're focused on what we want. We're consumed by what we want. We want our lives to be perfect, our lives to be good, our lives to work out the way that they're supposed to work out, and we want that to happen as quickly quickly as possible. That's not acting justly. That's acting selfishly. That's not natural to us to live and to walk and to act that way. Think about the second part of that verse. Love mercy. Do we love mercy? I mean, let's be honest. We want to say we love mercy, but what do we really love? We love revenge, right? We we don't like showing mercy to people. When people hit us, what do we do? We hit them back. What do we tell our kids? If somebody punches you in the face, turn the other cheek. If they punch you again, you rear back and knock the snot out of them, right? Because we love revenge. We don't love mercy. We love people getting what's due to them. We love, we we, we love it. We love it. When someone commits a wrong for them to have to pay for that wrong, the idea of mercy rubs us the wrong way. That's why when we see someone being treated in a way that they shouldn't be treated, we're filled with what towards the person who's treating them that way? Anger, frustration, because we don't love mercy. It doesn't come natural to us. We don't walk in a, in a just light. We don't love mercy. And we certainly, I mean, goodness gracious, we don't walk humbly. In today's culture, with social media everywhere, the last thing we could ever call ourselves is a humble people. We like, even with God's stuff, we like putting out there to people how good we are and what God's teaching us and what God's showing us and how cool we are and how bright we are and how enlightened we are and how everybody else is so stupid, but we're so great. We, we don't, we don't, we don't throw it out there as, as bragging, but dude, we brag all the time on social media, all the time. And some people have other people brag on them and then they retweet it or repost it or share it and like put a little hashtag at the bottom that says like, thanks man, or thank you. But that's, that's the most ridiculous form of, of, of bragging and self-centeredness I've ever seen. You would never walk into a party and somebody says, hey bro, nice shirt. He said I had a nice shirt. You guys see this? It's super nice. He said, thanks man, I appreciate that. We wouldn't operate that way, but we do it all the time on social media and it's looked at as totally fine and okay. Why? Because we don't walk humbly. Before we write this off as a simple scripture that we've got, that we've heard, that we've got nailed down, let's be honest about the reality of followers of Jesus in 21st century America. We don't live justly. We don't love mercy and we don't walk humbly. For so many of us, that's very difficult for us to do. And for many of us, it's not the indicating realities of our life. Why not? Why are we there? You say, well, we're human. Well, that's fine. You can, you can, we can use that cop out all day long. But at the end of the day, God wants something different for us. It says, this is God's will for us. This is what God requires of us. So if we're followers of Jesus and we say we want God's will in our life and he tells us what God's will is for our life, why aren't we doing those things because doing those things has to be fueled by becoming something 
See, we can do behavior modification and change what we do all the time. We can do that every single Sunday. God, I want to do better. I want to be better. I want to act better. And then we walk out and by Wednesday, we're living the same way that we were living before. We can act like we want things to be different. But the reality is the only thing that will consistently make things different in our life is not by changing what we do, but by allowing God to change who we are. The greatest example of this that I could find in the scriptures is a very familiar passage of scripture. And actually, it's a very familiar character in, in the scriptures. If you've got your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're going to look at uh, the life of David. Now, some of you are familiar with David. Some of you are familiar that he wrote Psalms. Some of you are familiar that he killed Goliath with a slingshot. And those are all really popular stories. But I want to point to a very different moment in David's life because we know that David loved God. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. But there's this interesting take in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12 where his life takes this hard right turn. And man, it is altogether different from the character we see of David throughout the rest of the scriptures. Now, we're going to be picking it up in 2 Samuel chapter 12. But before we do, I need to give a little bit of background of what's taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've got David, and he loves God with all his heart. He's found favor with God. God has given him the keys to the kingdom. He said, look, David, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. I'm going to make you king over all of Israel. And I want you to rule and reign in my name and be my ambassador ambassador to the people. I want you to be a good, godly king that leads with my precepts at the center of your heart. And David does that. And he builds this amazing empire and this amazing kingdom. And he loves God and he builds a kingdom after God's own heart. But then something strange happens. He's on his roof one night doing what kings do. I don't know what they do, but they hang out on the roof. He's probably smoking an e-cig or something. He's just chilling on the roof doing what kings do, right? And he looks across the street, and there's another house. And on top of this roof, there's a lady. And her name is Bathsheba. It's interesting that her name was Bathsheba because she was taking a bath. She was taking a bath on the roof. And David did. Now, you can judge David if you want to, but I'm just telling you, every red-blooded American male in this room would have done the exact same thing. David looks across the way and says, I want some of that. Right? He looks across the way. He sees a naked woman, and he says, that's what I want wants, right? And we, man, we, we like to criticize David. We like to give David a hard time. But David's on the roof. Nobody else is around. She's on the roof. Nobody else is around. She doesn't have any clothes on. David's a man and he's going, that's what I want. Now here's the problem. A lot of guys in this room would react and have the exact same thought process that David has. The only difference is we don't have the power that David did. But David had been given the keys to the kingdom. David could do whatever he wanted to do. And with great power <clears throat> comes great responsibility, right? And so with great power comes great responsibility. But the problem is there's this naked woman across the street and he sees her and he wants that. And because he wants that and he has the ability to take that, he does what we would do if we were in the exact same position. He takes what's not his. He asked his servants, go and get her and bring her to me. He brings her over. He woos her. He gives her some roses, gives her some chocolates, you know, says, I love you, says, you're awesome, says, you're beautiful. I saw you bathing. Come to my bedroom. And David, a man after God's own heart, David, a man who loves God and tries to build a kingdom based on his precepts, David, who stood up to a giant in the face of unbelievable adversity when nobody else would, David, slept with another man's wife what in the world so out of character so different what's going on with David we're going to find out in a minute but the story gets a whole lot worse and this is all in one chapter 
Like there's, there's two books of the Bible dedicated to David's life. It all goes downhill in one chapter, chapter 11. Because he sleeps with this man's wife. The man's name was Uriah. He sends her home. Then he finds out she's pregnant. Oh no, what are we going to do? She's pregnant. Well, again, he tries to cover up his mistakes. He tries to cover up the atrocities that he's committed. And so he, with his power, brings Uriah, this, this lady's uh, husband, he brings him back from the battle. He's off fighting in war and he brings him back from the battle and he says, I want you to go home. You, you've done a great job. You've done a lot, of, a lot of good work. I want you to go home. I want you to spend the night with your wife. I want you to hang out at home. Right. Go home, spend some time with your wife. But Uriah was a good man. Uriah was a godly man. Uriah was a man who cared about his brothers in arms. And because Uriah cared about his brothers in arms, you know what he said? He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go and, and, and take a shower at my house and sleep in my bed and be with my wife when all of my, my brothers and comrades in arms are out fighting. No, I'm not going to do that. And he slept at the door of his house and wouldn't go in. David tried again to get him to do it and he wouldn't go in. And so David, in a panic, not knowing what to do, because it was, it was obvious like she was going to start showing soon and Uriah was going to find out and then it was going to be this whole big political scandal, this ordeal. What am I going to do? David used his power again. And he said to his servants, I want you to send Uriah back out to the battlefield, but I want you to put him at the front where the biting is the fiercest. And ultimately, he had Uriah executed. He had Uriah killed. And there's way more to the story but he brought in Bathsheba into his home and planned on raising the child as his own. Even while she was in mourning for her husband, he brought her in. Crazy series of events for this guy named David, right? Why would this guy named David live like this? I mean, this is the opposite of living justly. This is the opposite of loving mercy. This is the opposite of walking humbly. But he's a man after God's own heart. What's going on? We're going to find out in chapter 12, picking it up in verse 1. It says that the Lord sent Nathan. Now, Nathan was a prophet um, on behalf of God to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. He's telling a story so that David has a clear picture of what's going on. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He had raised it and grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So about two people. One's got cattle and livestock and sheep galore. And one's got this one little ewe lamb. Now, a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And he told this story so that David could see a picture. The problem is, is David didn't realize that the picture he was looking at wasn't a picture at all. Instead, it was a mirror of what was going on in his own heart. In his own life. Look how David responds. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. 
Like David's thinking, I'm in power. I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. He thinks it's a true story. He says, I want that man brought in here. We're going to take his head off. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse seven, then Nathan said to David, and not in a good way, you are the man. Not you are the man, but you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why? And this is the most important verse which gives clarity to everything we've seen in chapter 12, everything we've seen in chapter 11. And if you go back and read everything we've seen seen leading up to chapter 11, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Remember, God's will for our life is to be in fellowship and communion with him. The way we're in fellowship and communion with him is by spending time in his word. David knew God's will, but he wasn't in God's will. That's why when it came time, he didn't do God's will with Bathsheba. So many of us struggle walking in his way. So many of us struggle walking in a way that looks like Jesus and walking in the spirit. And the reason that we struggle walking in his ways, the reason that we struggle walking in justice, the reason that we struggle walking humbly, the reason that we struggle loving mercy, the reason that we struggle walking in his ways is because we've neglected his word. And when we neglect his word, it it, it makes it very difficult when the opportunity arises to do his will because we haven't spent time in his will. Last week we said this, that why would God reveal to you the hidden will that he has for your life if you're not already doing the revealed will that he's made clear for your life? You will always make bad decisions that are not God's desire and design for your life if you're not already doing what it is that God's called you to do and becoming who it is that God's called you to be. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Acting out of God's will is always a result of being out of God's will. Acting out of God's will is always a result of being out of God's will. I've been a pastor now for about 10 years. And in those 10 years, it seems like the stories start to kind of run together and the lives start to kind of run together because there's these themes that are in everybody's life. And every single person I've ever seen that have made decisions in their life that were bad calls, bad moves, bad decisions that resulted in bad consequences for their life. And they made decisions that were outside the will of God. It's always stemming from the reality that they're not in the word of God, which is ultimately the will of God for your life and for mine. See, God wants to shape you. God wants to transform you. God wants you to do the things that he's called you to do, but you can't do the things that he wants you to do if you're not becoming the person 
that he's called you to be. That's why the New Testament writer in Romans chapter 12 says that you renew your mind daily. Because before I can tell you what to do, before I can get into the logistics, before I can get into the details, the only way that any of this stuff that I'm teaching you, church, is going to work is if you will renew your mind every day. And how do we renew our mind? By getting in his word. But we're too busy doing life our own way, living life our own way, doing our own thing by our own standards. And then when it comes time to make a tough decision, what do we do? Show me a sign. Show me a sign. Show me a sign. And God's going, I wish you would quit asking me to show you a sign and start looking at the signs that are already in your life at your relationship with me. Signs shouldn't be directions to the will of God. They should be evidence of the will of God in our life. When we begin to speak and act and live and love and move like Jesus, those should be signs that God is actively moving and working and shaping us and doing things in our life. And when we see a lack of those signs in our life, we should be realizing the reason that there's a lack of those signs in our life is because we're not in the will of God. But God loves you. God cares about you and he wants what's best for you. And he knows that he could tell you what to do at every turn. And ultimately your life would be miserable. Ultimately your life would be filled with stress, anxiety, worry. And you'd always be grasping for peace. And God says, I want to give you constant, real, long-lasting peace. Because I want what's best for you. You are my child. And I want you to experience life the way that I meant for you to experience it. But the only way that you can experience Constant and real peace when making decisions is to first make the decision to be who it is I've called you to be. And that's someone in constant pursuit of intimacy with me. Someone who is constantly in pursuit of accountability from my church. Someone who is Desperate for a daily relationship with God. Because God is convinced, as we are convinced, that if you would begin living life in God's will, meaning walking in his ways, looking like his son, living by his spirit, by being in his word, if you would begin to live life in God's will, you wouldn't have to ask God what his will is for this decision or that decision or where you should go or what you should do because God's way more interested in who you are than what you do. And before I pray, before I close, I'm keenly aware of this reality. I'm aware of the fact that there's a lot of you in the room that maybe just don't buy it. You don't buy into the whole God thing. You don't buy into the whole Jesus thing. You come here because you like the music. You like the people. Everybody's super cool. You kind of dig what's happening here, but you're not really sure you buy into the whole God, Jesus thing. And so the idea of you investing time and energy into pursuing God's word seems a little asinine to you, and you'd rather just try to figure it out on your own. Can I just kind of offer one piece of advice, if that's you? Would you be willing to just give it a shot? Just give it a shot. Like, if you don't believe that this is the word of God and you're not sure you believe in the existence of God, maybe you believe something's out there, but you're not sure it's found in here, then what's it going to hurt to open this up 
and allow God to prove himself to you. Because I'm convinced that he will. I'm convinced that you'll, you'll find yourself stopping, grasping, grasping, grasping for signs, grasping at straws, grasping for peace. And you'll find yourself with clarity and direction and understanding like you've never experienced it before. You say, I don't believe that. Well, then try it. Prove me wrong. But I've just watched it happen way too many times for you to write it off. And for those of us who do, for those of us who buy in, it's time we stop looking like the world and living by our own convictions. It's time we start looking like Jesus and living by his spirit. By intimately pursuing the truth of his word. That's how we live justly. That's how we begin to love mercy. That's how we begin to walk humbly. And that's how people out there begin to want what the people in here have in their life. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the gift of salvation, which makes a relationship with your Father through this word and makes the accountability and the fellowship of his church a reality in our lives. We ask that we never take it for granted. We never miss it. And we don't minimalize this as scratch and sniff, as surface level, as beginner truth. But we would recognize that many of us do the very thing that David did. I think, well, I've got the will of God. I know the will of God. I understand the will of God. I'm a, a man after God's own heart. But yet had gotten to the point where he despised the will of God. Help us not to get there. Convict us. Draw us back to yourself. Help us to become the people that you have called us to be. So that inevitably when it comes time to make decisions, we can do what it is that you've called us to do. We love you. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.